Welcome back to the JPO Podcast. This is the November 2020 episode. We'll be going over this month's print issue of the journal. And to change things up a little bit, uh, we have all the co-hosts on the line together, and we're going to be discussing some articles together. Uh, I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Craig Lauer from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital, Colorado. And Josh Holt from the University of Iowa. We're all here, guys. This is great. Excited. Finally. <laughs> so uh, I just want to mention to the listeners that uh, along with this kind of new format where we'll be uh, in person, uh, we also have a new email address. And I want to solicit feedback uh, since we are changing a few things with the format and how it's done. I'd love to hear from uh, anyone who's listening who has an opinion about what we could do more of, uh, what you'd like to hear less of. That email is pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. So please send all comments, uh, hopefully critical comments, you know, in residency, that's the most, the best feedback you can get. But I uh, will also take um, any uh, cheerleading as well. Pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. If you want to give us your positive feedback on iTunes and Google <laughs> Podcasts and our negative feedback at the email address, we would appreciate that too. Fantastic point. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital, Colorado, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Sarah Hunter from Waikato Hospital in New Zealand to discuss her paper entitled External Validation of an Algorithm to Predict Adjacent Musculoskeletal Infection in Pediatric Patients with Septic Arthritis. Dr. Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm going to give our uh, listeners a little bit of a background. So since the development of the COGR criteria, there's been significant interest in our field in developing algorithms for prediction of MSK infection. So Rosenfeld's 2016 criteria for prediction of adjacent infection in children with septic arthritis was also groundbreaking, but has led to some interesting follow-up studies regarding regional variation in pediatric MSK infection, including yours. So just as a quick review for our listeners, Rosenfeld's study did propose that patient age above four years, CRP over 8.9, platelet count over 310,000, uh, absolute neutrophil count over 7,200 uh, were all risk factors for adjacent infection. And three of those var uh, variables signified a positive result and an indication to obtain an MRI. So these, val these findings were validated internally as well as externally in the same region and have been helpful for some practitioners in certain parts of North America, but there's obviously been a couple um, recent questioning uh, about whether this applies to the rest of the world. So could you tell us a little bit about your patient population in New Zealand and what prompted you to evaluate these criteria at your institution? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, New Zealand is quite geographically isolated and ethnically and socially diverse. So we have a high percentage of um, indigenous Māori in the region that we were studying, um, making up almost a quarter of the pediatric population. And as our research highlights, the rates of bone and joint infection for Māori children are some of the highest in the developed world. Um, so for our orthopedic de department, it's a constant challenge to select which children are going to benefit for advanced imaging. 
Um, the COCA criteria are great at identifying children at risk of septic arthritis. However, the clinical picture for an isolated septic arthritis and those with an adjacent infection overlaps quite significantly. And an algorithm that could help us predict which children should have a, a pre-operative MRI would be so useful. Um, we wanted to apply the one that was developed by Rosenfeld, but before we did so, we thought we would test it on a retrospective cohort. Perfect. And since you do have a very unique population there, can you tell us what your findings were in the 53 patients that you did include in your study? Uh, yeah, certainly. The sensitivity and specificity for the algorithm were around 73 and 44% retrospectively. So some of those variables um, remained useful. Uh, CRP, um, we found a CRP over 50 would predict quite well an adjacent osteomyelitis for kids in our population. And the same goes with a delayed presentation of more than three days. So those two variables remained very useful for us. Um, however, if we applied Rosenfeld's criteria um, exactly as published to our population, we were not picking up enough disseminated disease to make it um, used clinically in a routine way. So that prompted us to think about what might be different about our cohort and whether there was um, an issue with um, applying algorithms developed at distant centers um, without um, assessing them further. Absolutely. Um, and what do you think contributes primarily to the regional variations in infection evidenced by your study? Do you have any idea on that? I know that's a very difficult question. <laughs> No, no, I think it's a great question. Uh, there's a few things. Firstly, microbiology. We um, frequently see invasive bone and joint infection in children in New Zealand as a result of sensitive Staph aureus, which um, I think contrasts perhaps with the US population seeing a lot of MRSA. Um, and this um, is for a number of reasons, geographic isolation. And then there's um, a hypothesis that the virulence factors for staph in our region may be quite different. The uh, entire cohort we studied, only one child had MRSA identified. Wow, that's incredible. And that is very different than what we see in many of the yeah. US populations. So. Um, so what role do you think advanced imaging should play in standardized MSK infection workups? Um, because we do see some variability across, of course, the U.S. and across the world in the accessibility to MRI and then also the utility, uh, especially in younger kids that need anesthetics. Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. I think we suffer from similar resource constraint in, in many of our tertiary and provincial hospitals. So having algorithms to help predict are uh, extremely useful from an economic perspective. However, one of the key findings from our research is that MRI showed far more periarticular infection than was suspected clinically. And I think that's something that other um, researchers have found um, as well. Only half of those who received scans for suspected septic arthritis had an isolated septic arthritis for our population. The rest of them had subperiosteal abscess or pyomyositis. And as Rosenfield points out, that automatically changes perhaps your operative technique, um, your length of stay. And in our population, that automatically dictates a much longer duration of IV antibiotics. So that's using our Starship clinical guidelines. We have to change that. So we would encourage um, the use of MRI in children perhaps who have that really high CRP 
um, and certainly in children who present after more than three days of symptoms, I, I would um, feel that those two variables were quite well validated um, by our study and by previous studies, um, and MRI use should be encouraged in those cases. Absolutely. I think those are great points. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is valuable about having so many different institutions validate all of these things is that we can find some common threads that can be taken from other institutions across the globe that may not have the same population, but we find those few things that do have a common ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you see as the next steps forward in developing appropriate guidelines for MSK infections worldwide. Obviously, you guys have a very unique population there. Um, but where do you think this this study goes as far as big picture? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, obviously, the practical limitation on children's research is that it's hard to get that level one RCT based study. However, um, we would really support um, testing and constructing algorithms across multiple centres and involving multinational studies. Uh, this perhaps highlights um, that any regionally developed algorithm is going to need quite rigorous testing to ensure clinical safety, um, and we would certainly support more external validation studies being done. Well, one last follow-up question then for you. Are you guys, have you guys changed your algorithm at all or have you changed the way that you treat patients based on your findings of this study? Um, That's such a good question. I think the study has prompted us to do two things. Firstly, uh, we have perhaps a lower threshold now for requesting an MRI in children with delayed presentation because of that um, obvious method of contiguous spread that can be a real issue. And then the other thing is we're trying to investigate, and this is not just my center, why we have so much invasive bone and joint infection in our population and why in Māori and Pacifica children, we're seeing so much more of it. So we're both changing our approach and looking for answers at the same time. Fantastic. That's the way to move forward. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Julia, what do you do for septic joints? Are you getting MRIs routinely? Yeah, so we have a really nice protocol. We've had a really great uh, multidisciplinary group work on our MSK infection protocols. And so uh, all of our kids that have a suspected MSK infection get blood cultures and labs drawn in the ER. They get admitted to PEDS. And we have a dedicated uh, 7.30 a.m. MRI slot and anesthetized MRI um, the following morning. And then we have the capability to take those kids directly from MRI to the OR. So what Um, about a septic hip that comes in at, you know, 10 PM, is that going to the OR and then getting an MRI after, or is that getting a middle of the night MRI? Nope. So that gets a 730 AM MRI and then straight to the OR. We do MRI any suspected MSK infection. Um, if we're suspecting bone or joint involvement, just because we do have a high rate. And I think there is variability across the country. We know that Um, we have a high rate of periarticular infection um, and we have a lower rate of of MRSA here in in Colorado than like Texas or the Southeast does. And I think one of the interesting things about this, um, these kind of regional validations is that we see differences in the region of the U.S., uh, even not even just the world. Um, but so we have the opportunity that we have great resources. So we can get an MRI and all these kids, um, we can do a middle of the night MRI if there's, uh, an anesthesia staff available, but unless the kid is, um, is septic, 
and we will wait until the morning. And is that kid getting aspirated in radiology or anything, or they're, the suspected septic hip is going to get the MRI in the morning, then aspiration in the OR? Yeah, and we have a we've had a quality improvement project, so we have a turnaround, very quick turnaround time for aspiration now, so we can get a cell count reliably within about twenty minutes. So um, we will take the kid, uh, preferably directly from MRI. Sometimes if we can't, then they'll wake up, go to PACU, and then come back to the OR. But we do try to take them asleep from MRI to the OR, aspirate, wait for the cell count if there's a concern. But oftentimes, as you know, I mean, we aspirate and it's gross purulence, then you're going to open anyway. We've got a uh, formal protocol where the surgeon walks the specimen over to the lab and then paces around the lab looking very impatient until someone tells them what the result is. It's really sped up our uh, turnaround. Yeah, the angry surgeon is quite effective. (laughs) Craig, are they still aspirating all these hips routinely at Chapel Hill in the, like from the emergency department to radiology almost before orthopedics gets involved? It, it seems as though if there's suspicion of, and we have a algorithm written up as well, that it was developed by a multidisciplinary team. Um, but yeah, that is happening. So I would say our MRI capabilities aren't um, quite as streamlined as Julia's. And so sometimes it's, more helpful to have that diagnosis in an earlier fashion. And we're, we're still in the position, it sounds like um, Dr. Hunter and her group is where you know, you're deciding when to get an MRI based off of the clinical criteria, um, you know, elevated CRP or three days. And that's, that's not actually in the algorithm. That's kind of up to surgeon discretion. I don't know where I learned that. I don't think I read the original study that, uh, that you all were citing, but, uh, I guess someone had told me that at some point, but that's, that's the rules I've been kind of living by at this point. Yeah, I didn't realize, usually, oh, sorry, as I say, we usually have a diagnosis of septic arthritis or not, or we're making that decision to go. And usually if that's, if that's negative, then you're looking elsewhere and that sometimes results in MRI or if it's positive, but you're suspicious of disseminated infection, then you're probably going to put a halt on going to the OR and try and get the MRI beforehand. I didn't realize how special it was when I was at UNC, but if I remember correctly, the PEDS ER would basically send the patient to radiology, they would get sedated, hip aspirated, and you would have the results of the hip aspiration before the orthopedic consult was even called. So it avoided all of the you know waiting in the operating room. I didn't realize that that was yeah. so much easier than everyone else has it. You know, I had a similar situation in residency where in, at St. Louis, at WashU, they do the same thing. You know, the disadvantage that people will talk about is that it's two sedations or maybe a necessary procedure right. for the kid instead of doing it in the OR where you can then wash it out. I don't know how risky that is, you know, being, being in situations where you're taking a kid from the MRI suite to the OR sedated when it's not uh, extremely efficient or streamlined because that takes a lot of effort, coordination and staff and everything else. And um, sometimes I feel like that's maybe more risky than just two separate sedations, depending yeah. on how it's done. Well, and there's um, a lot so of literature out there that multiple sedations is really not that dangerous. Um, yeah. as long, you know, I, I, you certainly don't want like two 12 hour anesthetics next to each other, but we do that in spine too. So, I, I mean, ultimately these are pretty safe and these are being done in a, in a situation where even if you have two sedations, whether it's for aspiration and then OR or MRI, and then OR. Um, it's something that's really safe in today's anesthesia world. So. Yeah, have, have you guys studied uh, 
your regional, I mean, it's, you had a lot of info about your kind of regional characteristics of infections, but I mean, I imagine with you getting an MRI on everyone, I mean, you must have a, a ridiculous amount of good data. We do. It's um, pretty complete that can be looked at. Yeah. Please, and, please uh, share, share. Share. <laughs> We've been part of this uh, pros- retro and prospective database of cortices. And the first wave of those papers are going to be coming out soon. Um, it's basically 12 institutions, five-year, massive amount of data. And it's almost like it's so much data that it's hard to sift through, to be honest. Um And you find, as with any research, I feel like that you, when you go back in charts, there's not as much information as you wished there was, right? So, um, and a lot of it is maybe the read isn't as clear, you know, they're the classic radiology read of like possible subperiosteal abscess, you know, so then you end up up having to look at that MRI yourself. So it's it's a lot of work, but I think we will be getting some answers from, from the Cortices database soon. One other thing I thought kind of came up in your conversation with her that was interesting was, you know, the admission to pediatrics, which, you know, we also have in our protocol, because I think that, you know, these kids can get sick quick. And, you know, I think that that's important, but do y'all remember when um, Dr. Hamish Crawford came to our visiting professorship and we were still fellows and he mentioned how important he thought it was actually that the orthopedists still manage them. If they, I may not be remembering that right, but whether he said that they're on the orthopedic service or he just stressed how important it is that don't just do the surgery, ship them off to peds and hope they get better. Like you are the expert about these infections and it's essential to stay on top of their care and be involved every day. I obviously still remember that, but how do you manage that when you're with, when you're on the PEDS team, you know, what safeguards are in place and does anyone not have the PEDS team involved? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think every institution does it differently is probably the answer. And I don't know that there's a right or wrong way. It's what works with the resources that your institution has. One thing that we've been really successful with here is um, we do pass rounds every day. So um I and one of my partners switch off days, but we round with the orthopedic service, the PED service, and the infectious disease service on every MSK infection every day. And so you get that face-to-face conversation and everybody's on the same page and nothing gets lost in translation. And so it gives that same amount of control where ortho is really the one driving the bus but we don't have to do the, the orders and we don't have to deal with the diaper rash that they get from their, you know, antibiotic. And so many questions from Adria. What time of day do you do them? <laughs> so and how long do they last? Yeah. How long does rounding <laughs> with the infectious disease service last? <laughs> well, so it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, actually. The, the ID yourself, Carter, Meredith, ID. I know. As, as <laughs> I feel like as the spouse of an ID attending, I can say that. It, it works out great for us. I think, again, it's really personality dependent. So when I do it, I'm we, we walk together. While we're walking, we talk about anything we need to talk about. I don't let them like go through their whole like 10 minute presentation. We just hit the bullet points and then I go in and do my exam and then I walk out of the room and we move on to the next patient. And so they do their rounding kind of their medical style rounds beforehand 
or afterwards. And we round whenever it's convenient for me, which is really nice. So we round in between cases or after cases. Um, and they uh, are generally able to make themselves available, at least someone from their team. You know, it's not necessarily the whole team from each group, but mm -hmm. we generally have a representative from each team there. And it's been it's been great. I think the parents appreciate it because the last thing they want is different stories from different people. Mm -hmm. And um, so we have a chance to get on the same page every day. That's a really good yeah. idea. Do all the uh, ID med students live in fear of Dr. Sanders that if they take too long on their presentations, <laughs> they'll be shut down? She'll just walk right in the room and examine the patient. <laughs> the only thing I would add from Iowa, so we have similar, we have a an algorithm that we've created just recently and kind of finalizing it. The only thing we do differently is I've really advocated to almost separate hip from other MSK infections. I feel like the hip is a different beast. I mean, there's been several studies that have shown that Coker criteria can't be applied with the same sensitivity and specificity to other joint and other areas other than the hip. And because of that, to me, I don't have a strong push for an MRI if I have sufficient clinical data, Coker criteria data, and then oftentimes an ultrasound. We get those in the ER quickly at any time of the day, any time of night, we get an ultrasound. So if I have clinical concern plus an ultrasound that shows an effusion and, and a story that makes sense, I don't, there's no reason for me to wait for an MRI. I haven't been burned that I know of. Again, because we don't get MRIs on all of those, if you don't look for periarticular infection, you're not going to find it. Um, I haven't been burned yet, but certainly other joints, other areas, you know, where, where the Coker criteria and other clinical manifestations are different. I think we do similar and we would oftentimes get the MRI that night or overnight and then be in the OR with them, you know, immediately from the MRI scanner. We don't have a dedicated MR time or anything like that, but we typically make those arrangements through the night. Yeah, it seems like that's one common school of thought that makes a lot of sense, you know, wash out the hip. And then if it is that rare case where the infection persists, go back and do it. Yeah, I've and I drill, I, drill, I drill a hole or two holes in every hip like we learned in, at Rady. Again, I haven't had one where I drilled a hole and a bunch of pus came out, um, but I, I still do it. Certainly, that's what we were all taught. Again, I haven't had a situation where I was back with one of my patients um, with a persistent infection that didn't resolve as I would expect a, a routine septic hip to resolve. So add some that's complexity, add some more chronic presentation, and yeah, I'd get an MRI. Otherwise, I have I feel like it's worked pretty well. It's fine. I've found myself on the other end of the spectrum. I've been trying to get an MRI on everyone unless they're septic or there's some real logistical obstacle. And I almost got burned pretty badly recently. We had a kid, seemed completely like a septic hip, perfect story, and got an ultrasound, and it was red as an effusion. And I looked at it, and it did look like a small effusion, and we had time, so I got an MRI. Um, I think actually because like this paper, it had been going on for a little while, and there was no effusion on the MRI. And you know, I went back and looked at the ultrasound, and it completely looked like an effusion on the ultrasound. And sure enough, on the MRI, there was a subperiosteal abscess on the inner shelf of the pelvis and nothing going on with the hip. That near miss, you know, we almost went in, aspirated, wouldn't have gotten anything, would have woken the patient up, and then gotten the MRI the next day. So that has sort of cemented my intent to try to keep getting MRIs when the time allows. I think the, the really interesting question there is, of course, you know, if you don't look for it and you don't find it mm -hmm. and the patient does well, then did you need to look for it? Yeah. And, Great point. You know, we don't, I don't think we have the answer to that. And that's really, as you say, everybody's own bias based on their last time that they got burned. Right. Um, Maybe and, you. Right. Unfortunately, that's 
how a lot of our decisions get made. And we, I think until we have that answer in, in hard numbers, then it's going to be really hard to say what's right and what's wrong. I mean, yeah, but you'll have hard numbers for Colorado where you guys have plus rounds. What does that mean for us in Iowa? Right. That's what's hard about all this is regional variability and everything else. Your, your numbers may or may not apply the cortices. That'd be a good, obviously a multi-center study. If you find hard numbers and consistent data across multiple centers, you know, that's the numbers that we need. Right. I think one thing that was really interesting in, in Dr. Hunter's paper is the amount of children that had periarticular infections that wouldn't have been caught by the criteria. And so I think it is different in every population, unfortunately. And so it may be the answer to all these questions may be that every institution has to come up, has to do their own research and figure out what works there, um, unfortunately, because different areas really do seem to have different virulence factors and different bacterial nomograms. That's a good way to uh, wrap it back up into Dr. Hunter's study. Shall we quit talking about pus rounds? (laughs) (laughs) All right, going to Chapel Hill. So this is Craig Lauer from UNC Chapel Hill. We will next discuss an article entitled Pain Control and Medication Use in Children Following Close Reduction Percutaneous Pain of Superconvo or Humerus Fractures. Are we still over-prescribing opioids? This is from lead author Matthew Stillwagon and senior author Anna Vergun from UNC Chapel Hill. I have Dr. Vergun uh, on the line with me today. So uh, Anna, thank you for being here, uh, especially on short notice. My pleasure. I'm sure you felt like you had no choice, but uh, <laughs> but again, uh, thanks for being here. <laughs> So uh, as a little bit of background, I think we all know opioids are a bit of an epidemic. And although supraconal humerus fractures are extremely common, uh, I don't think we fully understand, or at least we didn't prior to this, the pain needs of our patients postoperatively. And I think you identified this as an opportunity to decrease uh, the opioid prescribing uh, that was going on with these. So would you just maybe get a little more uh, granular and tell me uh, what what led you to have the idea for this study and how did it come about and take the shape that it, that it currently is? Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite stories to tell uh, because it involves a, a personal experience where um, I, just after I moved to Chapel Hill, it, I realized as I was examining a four-year-old that had a trigger thumb with his finger stuck in flexion that, um, and I was recommending that it needed to be released to one of my patients, I realized I also had a four-year-old at home with a trigger thumb that I had forgotten about my own child. <laughs> I went home and discovered that the finger had been stuck in flexion for his entire life, and I'd done absolutely nothing about it. So um, long story short, I one of the hand surgeons here did the release, and post-op, I was prescribed by one of the residents that later became and attending here, um, I was prescribed about 500 mLs of oxycodone elixir for my four-year-old. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I thought, well, did I, what? Like, it was like basically getting a bottle of Jack Daniels to go home from the pharmacy. And I, I just thought, like, do they know, like, does the attending know that this is what the resident prescribed? And then I realized that I had absolutely no idea what the residents were prescribing for my patients when they went home. So I, for after basic things like supercondylers. So I started asking them and it was just all over the place. And, and then I realized I also just had no idea what really their pain needs were. So the, the study really grew out of that. 
and not to disparage our residents because of course we think they're all excellent but they probably were just trying to take care of it so they didn't have to ask us how how could they know unless we tell them right exactly they like all residents are just trying to do a good job and and i realized and that's we're all in that boat well, let me kind of summarize um, the study methods for the listeners. So essentially, it was two parts to the study. First, it was retrospectively look over you know, uh-huh. two to three years on um, the opioid prescribing habits for all isolated supracondylar fractures that got surgery. Um, so see what they went home with. Yeah. And then once you had that data, you did a prospective arm um, where you um, called patients who had surgery and uh, at days one, three, and five post-op uh, for about two years. And you asked about their pain scores, asked about how many opioid doses uh, they were prescribed, how many they used, and also asked, and I think the key thing here um, that really separates us from others is you asked about, um, did they take a non-opioid? Did they, were they prescribed a non-opioid? And um, did they try those first? And you guys found out that 28% of the patients uh, used no opioids um, on the second part of this trial. 60% of them used less than three doses. And the average doses used by families were, uh, were just four doses used. So obviously well short of the, of the 45 doses that had been prescribed uh, up to that point. Did this surprise you, these results? Um, no, it didn't surprise me at all. Because I had, when I, when I got that, you know, bottle of Jack Daniels when I went home and I started thinking about this whole thing, um, I started asking parents how many doses, you know, just in clinic, I was just curious how many, how many doses did you use? And it was, it was always like, you could count it on one hand. And so mm-hmm. that was really before the study started. So I, I was really anticipating that. Um, I think, you know, in just in designing the study, I think what was hard was that, you know, we're at an institution where we have three or four peds ortho providers, but everybody takes calls. So the, uh, you know, the other 20 to 24 people in our department were all adult providers. So it was going to be something that was going to be hard to get everybody to agree to a protocol, especially since we didn't totally know what they needed. Um, so the preliminary part of the study, when we, when we, you know, got those preliminary results, I think the interesting thing was that, you know, there wasn't a lot of counseling on first line and second line, um, pain medication. The first line being ibuprofen and Tylenol and second line being narcotics. And so people were just getting prescriptions and going home and figuring it out. Right. For the most part, or or if they got counseling, it was certainly not a routine thing. So, um, if you go, if you look at those patients, and you know who got narcotics and who didn't, an interesting question embedded in there is who took Tylenol and ibuprofen as a first line treatment or not. And most of the ones that had narcotics did not get any first line treatment with non narcotics, and the time of day that they got the narcotics was always bedtime. Yeah, there was so, a, a, the mention of night pain was the reason given in the vast majority of, of cases. I, I, I hear that all the time from patients. I really don't know what it is about that time. I, I they just want the kids to fall asleep. <laughs> I know as a parent, yeah. sometimes that's all well, you want. Well, exactly. You know, and I think it was, 
fear of night pain over actual night pain. Um, you know, if they get it their very first night they get home, there's that that's fear of night pain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are probably some kids that really do truly have um, night pain, but not getting a non-narcotic as a first-line treatment, um, you know, I think we just don't know if they still need the narcotic or not. I, I feel like there's kind of two points that are probably worth hitting on that are almost wrapped up in each other. I mean, the first you touched on is that, you know, we don't prescribe Tylenol and ibuprofen near as much as we prescribe oxycodone. Part of that is because you kind of feel like you're wasting your time prescribing it when you know it's available over the counter. But unless you back that right. up, unless you back that up with counseling, the family just leaves with an oxycodone script and they think that's all they're supposed to take. Even if you have it listed somewhere in the paperwork, oh, you can also take these things. Um, you really have to make it more clear and um, counseling is such an important part of that. Then again, I, I tell families this and then they ask me the same question five minutes later. And I mean, they're, they're just getting over the fact that their kid had arm surgery and they're not really listening to you talking about Tylenol. Um, so I, I get that. Right. I, don't, I don't know what the way around that is. Do you feel like there's uh, any intervention that, you know, we could be taking or departments could be taking as a whole just to increase the amount of non-opioids and decrease opioids? Yeah, you know, so what I've started doing is I actually tell parents I've studied this and, um, and what we've learned is that, you know, most children don't need any narcotics at all. And the ones that do, um, it's maybe one or two doses and most likely still would have been fine without narcotics. And then I'll ask them, you know, I'll say, I can give you a script for five doses. Do you want it? And it's a surprisingly high number of parents that don't like that. They don't. And I think that speaks to a little bit, you know, the media has really um, put it out there that, you know, you're, you know, we have an addiction problem here. So I think that to, to some extent that helps that discussion. Um, and so I have most parents just tell me they don't want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, the other thing that it has, I've changed my practice with since this study was um, telling parents that if they've got pain beyond, if their child is asking for pain medication beyond the third day, that I need to know about it. And I want it, and then I'll triage them and get them into clinic because um, the few patients that had a problem all had pain beyond the third day. And they had a pin, one had a pin site infection. I can't remember if one or two, but it was between pin site infections and splints being too tight. Um, and they had a problem and it needed to be addressed. And so, you know, if you just tell the parents that, they'll. Um, the onus is on them to get in touch and then you can fix it, you know, instead of like 10, 14 days later, there's, they're asking for narcotics and you're trying to figure out what happened and they've had a tight splint that long. And that, that I have to say that just happened to me. I was following up someone's post-op and, um, and a kid had an AIN palsy and we thought maybe it was neuropathic pain, but I'm like, still, it just, you know, we took the splint down and it was digging into her skin and her pain went away. So as often as we pin supercondylars and deal with that, I think about the results of this and the takeaways on a fairly frequent basis. It's just so practical, you know, whether it's telling the families how much narcotics to expect to use, or really that point about, if they're still having pain in three days, 
and needing narcotics, you need to let us know because something could be wrong. Um, is something that is so tangible. And I think if you kind of spread that around uh, to other physicians and our residents, um, I think it's really helpful and uh, results in some positive change. Yeah, well, it's certainly changed my practice and I feel more confident about what to tell families to expect. So, um, yeah, and we've got, we've got a few other things um, brewing. It raised a lot of questions about a lot of the procedures we do in the ER and, you know, that we're not prescribing those narcotics, but the ED docs are. Um, and that's been an interesting conversation because they're like, have you seen what they do to those forearms when they try and reduce them? And they'll <laughs> give them like a ton of narcotics. To come and I'm like, yeah, I've seen it. Like it's not anything less than what we do to those supercondylers. So, right, yeah. um, I think there's, um, so that, that's another study coming out soon. It's been interesting. So, well, that's great. Well, um, I just want to thank you for, um, you know, spending your, your evening talking to me and um, uh, telling us about the study. And thanks to uh, you and your co-authors for the great work. Absolutely. Anytime. Happy to talk to you, Craig. <laughs> All right. Appreciate it, Anna. And that was Anna Vergun from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. One of the things that I think is the most interesting about these studies that come out about pain control is how much counseling can make a difference, even if it's like very little conversation. And I'm always amazed and I wonder if you guys have the same experience where what you say and how you say it can completely sway the family. So I can like do the same kind of spiel, but spin it differently. And I can convince the family that they need all the oxycodone. And then I can also convince the family they need no oxycodone. And it is very easy to do that. And um, I've just been struck by how important, even if it is like a 30 second conversation with them, post-op about like, you know, try Tylenol and Advil. If that doesn't work, you've got a prescription, you can use it, but it's really only there if you absolutely need it. Call us if you have concerns and making sure that your number is available. But that like 30 second spiel can make a huge difference. Cause I think you never, you can only control what you tell people. I'm always amazed at what I hear come out of our PACU nurses mouths. Like, I don't know where it comes from. And I don't know, like, again, I think they're like so horrified by ortho that they're like, you're going to, you're, he's going to be in so much pain and you're going to need this. And if you didn't take the time as a surgeon to tell them, I think it makes a big difference. I'm impressed. You spend some time hanging out in the PACU between surgery and pus rounds. Uh, well, <laughs> I just left I was about to say, we see them two weeks later when they're like, yeah, everything's great. <laughs> they see them wake up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. For, uh, I was personally in the ED in, uh, or in the post-op area um, with my boyfriend who had surgery. And uh, the, the stuff that the PACU nurse was telling me was completely 180 degrees different from what the surgeon had told me. <laughs> And what was written on the discharge instructions. And I was like, this is terrifying to me because I don't know what people are saying to my patients. Like all you can control is what you say. So yeah, it's hard enough to make sure that the resident is putting in the discharge stuff, the exact same stuff I just counseled the family on. Exactly. Yeah. There's a whole nother layer with the uh, PACU nurses. Yeah, yeah. I've had that experience too, where the residents prescribed like multiple gallons of oxycodone, you know, and, and the parents bring it back in and they're like, what do we do with this? And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we started residency and my training, you know, it was from the more senior residents was very explicitly, 
there's no problem giving narcotics after surgery. It's not addictive if you're really having pain. You don't want your co-residents to get a call in the middle of the night. Give tons of narcotics. I mean, you know, yeah. not that many okay. years ago. Yeah. And is that the same university where the study was performed, Carter? <laughs> it was probably the same. It was probably my senior <laughs> resident who told me that. It was just giving out the Jack Daniels to the peds patients. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, I think one of the biggest skills that I'm still working on, but kind of developed in the first couple of years of practice is, you know, fine tuning what you're saying to people, saying it in efficient. And like you said, Julia, um, getting the right things out there. In fact, sometimes the more you talk, the less they hear and just being efficient and thoughtful with how you phrase that stuff. Truthfully, you kind of have to do it different depending on the families too, which sometimes makes it tough. So can we go down? Sorry, can we go down the line and say what we all do for uh, supercondylars? Like, for example, I give them five to ten doses of high set, and usually tell the family they probably will not need to fill the prescription. Start with over the counter Tylenol and ibuprofen. Can I just interject? This is going to give you some insight into what I do. Um, what's high set? Liquid. Which which mix is that? <laughs> Hydrocodone, Tylenol, drinkable. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Do you give them Tylenol along with that? I don't give them a prescription. I tell them to do over, unless they ask for it. And some, based on some insurances, it's all paid for if they have a prescription. But unless they ask for it, I tell them over-the-counter Tylenol ibuprofen, take the liquid hydrocodone if you need something extra. Joshua, I'm going to go last since we yeah, just yeah. talked so about do what six, we do at UNC. Six doses, six doses of Hyset. Tell them that they may or may not need it to use it kind of for breakthrough. And then I do six doses of Valium and tell them if it seems more like a, a muscle spasm cramp in the forearm, up in the arm, not like pain in the elbow to take the Valium and have had good success with that. So six doses of each. Mix them together for a good time. Exactly. <laughs> uh, how'd you choose six? Because all the studies say that like kids never need more than eight and eight seems like too much. So yeah, six. Well, th- this study um, from Dr. Vergun concluded six as well. So it's just funny how that happens. All right, Julia. So we gave three days. So I guess that's, if it's Q6, that's 12 doses of liquid oxycodone. And then they, we have a pre-filled discharge instruction sheet on how to give Tylenol and Advil as first-line medications and then as the oxycodone as a breakthrough. And we made that like a pre-selected order set in Epic so that it's not resident dependent so that every patient with a supercondylar gets that. Do any of you just prescribe ibuprofen and Tylenol or is it all just like written in there just get it yourself and use it? Yeah, I only do it if they ask for it. Yeah, I don't prescribe it. Same. Um, So we, we do five doses of oxycodone. We standardize that and removal of hardware as only getting five. And there's, there's a whole bunch of like General surgery has a couple things. We do it for spinal fusions too, but it's um, an algorithm that, or a program like QI project that the anesthesia department has done to see how well we adhere to these restrictions we've agreed upon. But five are I need to come out and do a spine fusion with you and see how you do five doses of oxygen. Oh, no, we do 40. We do 40 for those. <laughs> um, so it's five of oxycodone. And then I try and tell my residents to prescribe the ibuprofen and Tylenol just because you'll find that, you know, this study really highlighted how few people take it and how few people knew they should take it, no matter what you tell them. Cause I definitely tell them that, you know, it's like less than 30% of them take any, uh, anything other than oxycodone if you don't give it to them. So um, that way it shows up in their bag from the pharmacy, just like the oxycodone does. 
Do you guys do anything differently if there's an incision? It's not just perk. Like usually if there's an incision, I'll do local at the incision site. And then I usually encourage them to fill the prescription and take a dose of high set as the local's wearing off in, you know, six hours or however long. I do local for CRPP and ORIF. Oh, interesting. So um, we do an intraarticular injection, and then we also inject the pin sites. Hmm. So all our kids get. Can you hear the chondrocytes screaming over the OR music? Yeah. (laughs) We actually have a study that shows no issues, but it seems to be a very Colorado thing. I, I just inject local at the incision site and then stick with the same dosing just so it's simple. Yeah, for a superconductor, I don't I don't routinely do any injection. All right. Well, another news, I need to go make sure my uh, small children don't have trigger thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this month. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you for bearing with us with this new format. We hope you've enjoyed it. I realize the sound quality has been a little bit compromised having everyone on the line together, and that's something we're going to work on for next month. Please let us know any thoughts you have or want to share with us at pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. And as always, if you haven't yet checked out our other POSNA podcast, it's named Interview with a PD Pod, and the upcoming episode features Dennis Wanger. We're all excited to hear his words of wisdom. Have a very happy and safe Thanksgiving, and see you next month.